Hey, everybody, welcome into a Wild Card Friday right here on the Raheel Show podcast. Today on the podcast, I've got Juan Adams. He's a professional MMA fighter from the city of Houston. He wrote a beautiful open letter about the racial injustice and his three steps on how to eventually fix it. Juan is a great dude. You can read that letter in the description of this podcast before you listen to it. He had some great points and very insightful talk. I loved it. Here he is, Juan Adams. Oh, here we go. The biggest man I know, powerful Juan Adams. How you doing, man? I'm doing good, man. How are you? I'm doing all right. Dude, you're in Albuquerque right now? Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I moved out here, moved from a two-bed, two-bath in uh, River Oaks to a studio apartment in Albuquerque. To- okay focus more on training out here so i live uh in one of the apartments in the gym it's uh it's pretty interesting dude albuquerque is great we were just there for a snowboarding oh, trip yeah. and it's a it, it's a great place to just go clear your mind it is awesome yeah for sure it, it really is man because it's uh there's not a whole lot to do out here there's enough mm-hmm. but it's not houston by any stretch of the imagination and you know sometimes it's cool to just go drive late at, here late at night and go find a spot at the base of a mountain that's an adjustment right there bro it is it is quite the adjustment but um i actually love it man um you know i had a roommate earlier and now i'm i never thought i'd be happy in such like a small living space but it's pretty dope uh you know like i'm on my couch right now you can see my beds right behind me yeah got my little catfish wuhan back there you chilling <laughs> so we start every we start every episode with the same five questions with a guest so let's get this going number one juan what is one song you wish everybody would listen to at least once in their life um definitely eye to eye from a goofy movie it's a great song uh <laughs> one of the greater soundtracks in disney history okay i like that eye to eye from the goofy soundtrack i wasn't yep. expecting that one today but here we are. That's why I love that question. You never know what you're going to get. Okay, number two, what is one thing that you have to have in your fridge at all times? Ooh, for me, it's pineapple juice, man. I, I love fruit juices. Uh, pineapple just, just gets me there. It's on, it's on a different level. It's my favorite fruit juice for sure. Now, are you drinking it before training or during training? Uh, yeah, I usually try and wake up uh, every morning and have a, have a little bit of it during fight camp. It's one of the, you know, fruit, few fruit juices I can, you know, still drink. Um, you know, it's a hard cut for me to get to 265. I have to be pretty on top of my diet uh, when I do that. And um, so during during camp, it's, uh, it's definitely up there a lot more. I actually dr- probably drink more pineapple juice than I do Gatorade. Really? Yeah. What do you walk around at? Oof. Well, uh, thanks to COVID, I was walking around about 305, 310, but typically I walk around around the, in the 292 range. Okay. That's not too bad. Uh, then that cut happens, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. What is one place you want to visit that you haven't had a chance to yet? Oof. Definitely Niagara Falls. Oh, man. It's amazing. Yeah. It's a, you want to go to the Canadian side or the American side? I want to go to the Canadian side, and uh, I, I love Canada. I had it was my second UFC fight was in Canada, and um, I just I loved it over there. Dude, Niagara Falls is wild because you drive in from the Canadian side. We were in Toronto when we did this trip, 
And, you know, it's a two-hour drive. It's really like the drive is whatever. But when you get there, it's just this little – it's like almost like a carnival town. It is, please believe it or not, Hershey's Chocolate Factory. Like all these carnival uh, carnival stores to me. Who is one person alive that you want to meet and have coffee with? Barack Obama for sure. Dang. Dude, this is three in a row for former President <laughs> Barack Obama. He just seems like a cool dude. He's just got the swag, man. You can't can't teach that. <laughs> okay. All right. We'll go with Barack Obama. Three in a row, man. Uh, number five, what is one app that you want to delete from your phone, but you just can't do it? Oof. Facebook, for sure. Um, you know, it was... Uh, I just like went through a breakup, so that was that was rough seeing seeing it on Facebook all the time. That and then you know, obviously, social media apps in general. It's especially in a time like this when there's so much, there's such this big shift towards social awareness and and injustices and things like that. To go on there and still see, you know. And it's not just a millennial thing. It's Gen X, Y, Z, millennials, all that. It's mm-hmm. the, the sheer amount of attention-seeking behavior on there. Um, it just gets old. Um, you know, for the longest, um, you have to participate in, in my line of work. You know, my job is to garner and, and create attention for myself. But it's just a, it's such a big disconnect from who I am as a person versus who I have to be online sometimes, it's it's a pain. It's something I recognized that I had to do from the jump. You know, right when I started MMA was when Conor McGregor was just making huge waves, doing everything. And for me, it started so much as, as more of a means to sell tickets. You know, before you get to the UFC, that's how you make money. You get 20% of your ticket sales. So I used my social media to get people to buy tickets, make people interested in me, the the person uh, who is Juan Adams, you know, and I've taken on many different personalities across my social medias as, uh, as time went on. But now, um, you know, at one point, you know, that's how you get sponsors and everything. Uh, and as a, you know, in the beginning stages of your career, sponsors can make or break you. And, no, for so when I was making most of my income from social media, it was it was hard to you know constantly do these things. You know, uh, you have three or four sponsors, and you have to do it all once a week uh, for each of them, or you know every two weeks or once a month, whatever whatever it takes. It it gets draining, but seeing that um, I I recently. You know, for my last fight camp, I had a bit of a, I had a social media guide and, you know, he kind of just told me to, to pick, pick a few messages and really stay on brand with those messages. And uh, now that I don't generate any revenue from my social media, I get to pick those messages and, and really align with things that I actually care about. So it's not so much about money anymore because it's very hard to portray a message uh, of something that's important to you that mm-hmm. the company doesn't see a return on their bottom line or a return on investment for. So it it's it's sucks because I'm not making that money anymore, but it's also really liberating because I can post what I want, how I want to, and and really say things that I feel make a difference. Yeah, you know, it, it's, it, it's so hard. You know, people will always, you know, especially in the culture that we're in, 
the the few folks that have made it, it's almost the message is like, you know, I keep it real and, uh, you know, I say what I want and I don't care, you know, damn the sponsors. But it's funny when you're on your way up, there is some of that like, dude, you know what is nice? I would love this money. And you know what? If that means I have to sacrifice saying a few things, a lot of people that I know, hell, I've done it a few times. I'm not going to lie. You know, working in radio, something you, sometimes you have to filter what you say to play that game a little bit. Yeah, and uh, you just got to bite that bullet uh, at times. You know, I, I remember, whew, what was it? I used to do this thing where I would, like, talk about my poops every morning <laughs> on, <laughs> on my Instagram. And, you know, I had a sponsor who was just like, yeah, you got to stop that. But, like, it was just funny to me because so many people enjoyed that. And I'm yeah. like, it's just what I think about while I'm taking a crap. You know, it's not that, that big of a deal, but. You know, a lot of people were were upset when I couldn't do it anymore. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so one of the things that I wanted to hit on and the reason I brought you on is, one, I think you're a cool dude. Um, It's so awesome to see you progress in your career. But you wrote a really insightful, open letter regarding everything that's going on in our country with the police brutality, with the movement of Black Lives Matter. Again, it's like, you know, fast forward, it's like we're doing this every freaking year it's like come on can we solve it this time and you wrote a really insightful open letter and you laid out some actual solutions that you feel like could help fight racial injustice right and i love it from the top you said this is my opinion this you know this is my belief from what i've seen in life this isn't about hey this is the solution everybody take it and i want to be the leader of this movement it's just your side and your point of view and I love that, man. Like, I don't think we get enough of that where people just go from, hey, this is my journey. Okay. I'm not trying to solve everyone's problem, but I think here's a good way to do it. What made you want to write it first and foremost? Yeah, first and foremost, you know, as a um, as a young, you know, black male with uh, a fledging, like I have a small following. It's small considered compared to some other people large compared to many others, but I have this platform. I'm a verified account, you know, and, and people look at that. And for me, a lot of people were coming to me asking me, you know, well, what do you think the solution is? Or what would you do? How would you handle this? Like, or there's other people like, you know, I don't understand why are black people so upset about X, Y, Z. And for me, it's, I took the approach I did with it because I'm not a spokesperson for my entire race. I'm a representative of it just because of the, just due to the, how I was born, right? It automatically makes me a representative of that, but it doesn't mean that my thoughts echo that of every, you know, black person in America, every person of color in America. So I wrote that from that point of view, just listing my experience because i saw a lot of similarities between myself and george floyd you know he's a uh six foot six black male that grew up in the same neighborhood that i'm from so it really hit home and it was really one of those moments where it's like man that could have easily been me you know you changed one or two factors in my life and then that could have been me and that and that hurts and that's hard to, to look at and um you know it made me pretty uh pretty emotional about a lot of things but also i kind of wrote that letter because in an answer to the influx of messages that i was getting myself 
And when you posted the letter, you know, immediately it gets picked up by some of the national MMA websites. And now it's, you know, exposed to even more people. Before we get into the actual letter itself, because I do want to go through some of the points and talk about them because there's some really insightful stuff there. Um, what was the feedback like for you online once that letter started gaining a little bit more traction, not only from your Facebook page, but as I mentioned, some of the national sites started picking it up. What was the feedback like for you? Uh, for me, it was overwhelmingly positive. You know, you're always going to have a, a naysayer here or there. Um, I do my best not to label all those naysayers in, in one group. I, I try not to generalize people as much now. Um, and my thing is, you know, if you come at me with ignorance, all I can do is provide information right now. And that's what most of the feedback has been like. Thank you so much for vocalizing and verbalizing what it is that I'm feeling right now. I'm so happy that somebody could put it on paper and and express that because there's a lot of people that feel the same way that might not be as educated as me might not have had the, the tools at their disposal that i have don't have the platform that i have and uh can't reach the the same audience that i can so i was very happy with that and most people were very happy and, and thought it was you know a very well written and, and insightful thing and it wasn't just a snap reaction um that's where, the, you know, you run into a lot of trouble with that in the era we live in now, especially it's a sensationalized, everything is sensationalism, right? You go for that catchy headline, you go for the, the quick reaction. People want that raw, unedited, unfiltered emotion. And that's not always the best solution for things. You know, that doesn't really generate good dialogue. And that's where everything has to start with that dialogue, with those uncomfortable conversations, with acknowledging that, hey, while things might be great for me, there's a there's a really big group of people out there that it's not okay with and that, that things are not good for right now. Let's go through the actual points themselves now. You know, you said to fight racial injustice, uh, injustice it's going to be on three fronts. And the first one is the individual level. Um, expand on that a little bit. Right. So the individual le level is that, that's the human to human interaction level. Right. That's me to you speaking to your peers and and also like how one carries themselves. Right. That individual level for me, um, my whole life was when I was exposed to this stuff, I was just like, well, okay, this person has this generalized idea of how someone like me is supposed to behave and act. I have to try that much harder to become the exception to that. And maybe through an interaction with me, that person will be like, hey, maybe not all these people are like that. Maybe maybe there are more people like him out there. Mm -hmm. So that's the, and then there's also, you know, how you respond to individual conflict. You know, I can easily go out here and anytime I disagree with someone, cuss them out or say you're an idiot, label them ignorant, label them a racist, say all these things to them. And that interaction creates, um, creates a precedent for them. And then they go into each following interaction thinking, well, you know, I have to stifle how I think and feel now because I don't want to be called X, Y, or Z. So that level, I mean, we have to be a lot more open with each other and willing to have those conversations without judgment all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, if you can go into a conversation 
with the idea of I want to reach understanding as opposed to I want to prove a point as opposed to I want to win this interaction. That's what that's where real progress is made. That's where real growth happens. It's so funny that that winning the conversation thing that has taken over our lives in in the social media world. Uh, and then, you you know, carry some of that that energy out into your normal interactions. It's it really has devastated the whole listening portion of conversations, like just listening, understanding other people's point of view, understanding what their journey is uh, without trying to dunk on them, trying to, you know, yeah. to let them know like, oh, yeah, but my journey is this or yeah, but there's somebody else out there. That's really it to me has devastated everything. We have to do a better job of of listening to each other and taking the time to learn about each other because that's how you as you mentioned that's how we improve these individual individual relations uh, relationships and hopefully it, it 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 creates now this chain reaction of positive uh interactions that they have with other people that might look like you or look like me exactly and um you know and, and that's really hard especially when you know it's a burden for a lot of people that were in the same position as me being not only a minority in general, but a, a minority in your environment. You know, it, it, every school I went to, I, I feel like the the black population there was less than 10%. Uh, maybe in college it was a little bit higher than that uh, because obviously it was a Division One college. So I mean, most of our football team, all of our basketball team, and a lot of our wrestling team were, you know, minorities and African-Americans. You went to Strake, right? Your yes, yes. I uh, graduated from Strake Jesuit, and um, I think at the time I went there, we were at about either seven percent or right at ten percent. And in my class of two hundred twenty or so, I believe there were twenty-two black students in in my class. And graduated the uh, the graduated. I, I feel like it was less than twenty. It might have been right at twenty that graduated. Wow. And the rest of it, you know, there's probably another small percentage of other minorities, and the, the rest is overwhelmingly white, right? In that, yeah, exactly. in in, a, in Strake, which is a prep academy. Where'd you go to college? Uh, Virginia Military Institute. Okay, so over there, it might have been a little bit different, but it's like you know, the people that you come across at Strake, even in college, they're they're. I I would hope now because you're younger than me. Um, I would hope now it's not like, oh man, oh yeah, he's the you know he's the black guy. It's just, oh yeah, that's Juan. You know, you would hope that the interaction is now he's just a person. It's not, oh, that's a black guy or a brown guy or a Pakistani guy or whatever. Was it like that for you in college, or was it different? Uh, it was very different. Uh, well, the thing with, with Strike also is it's very root. Oh, not Strike, Virginia Military Institute. It, it's one of those places that's very rooted in tradition. Um, mm -hmm. Prime example, when you're a freshman, there's only one entrance that you can use there. You're referred to as a rat. You're the first six or seven months of school there. And you don't have any privileges. You wear a uniform every day. It's a very military, it's, it's a military college. You have to enter through one arch. There's six different entrances in the barracks, I believe, but there's only one that you can use as a freshman. And outside of that arch is a giant statue of Stonewall Jackson. And you have to salute it every time you exit barracks. Hmm. And so, for me, um, that's just that's just one aspect of it. But 
when you're there, you know, there's a divide at the school between people there for sports and people there that are there for the school, for the whole experience, right? So there's the athlete-non-athlete divide. Within that, there's also the divide of, you know, people that are hold rank within the system and uh, privates, you know, career privates in the system. If you if you don't apply for rank and you don't have any interest in rank, you know, you're sometimes looked down upon. So there's a there's three they call it uh, three legs to one stool. There's the athletic side, the academic side and the military side of it. So then there's another divide at the school between those who are commissioning and those who are not. Right. And when I was there, especially, there wasn't a lot of representation for. Uh, obviously, each of those groups has positive and negative connotations. There was an, an vastly underwhelming presence of minorities in the lights that were held positive. So yeah. as, a, as a minority there, sometimes or as an athlete there, you're looked at as someone that doesn't really care about the system, doesn't care about the deep traditions of the school. And that may or may not be true, but that's the overwhelming stigma attached to being a black athlete at BMI. What what does commissioning mean? Uh, commissioning means you're you're going to join the military afterwards. So, to commission into um, to be a commissioned officer in any of the military force, you have to have a college degree, and you have to go through an ROTC program, or you can do um, officer candidacy school once you get your degree. And at uh, VMI, you know, you're required to be participate in an ROTC for four years there. You have to have four years of ROTC and uh, ROTC labs. Your first two years there, everyone is treated as if they're commissioning. After your second year, you can decide whether you want to go the commissioning route or the non-commissioning route. Some There's other programs you can do where you can enlist there and then commission after you graduate, but you can enlist there to get some uh, some type of financial aid through your ROTC, but you're an active member of that military branch if you go that route. Wow, man, that's, that's tough. I can see how that would cause a divide with people there that are trying to go down the commission route. And, you know, if you're an athlete, you want to, you want to do your stuff and maybe you do end up doing it, but man, I could totally, I can totally see why that is such a big divide there, man. That's, that's crazy. So that brings me to the next one, the institution, point number two for you. Talk a little bit about that one. Right. So institutionalized, um, the institutional aspect of it is is something that's, it's like a buzzword now. It's said Mm -hmm. a lot, not a whole lot of people understand what it means, but it's not just, you know, government, the institution of government. It's schools, it's businesses, it's, you know, anything that's not, on a strictly individual level. That's what an institution is. And the institutional aspect, you know, my biggest thing there, the overlapping thing is representation in all of this, right? You become, like me as a black man, I'm a representation of, or I'm a representative of my race, whether I want to be or not. That's a burden that I I can't just shirk completely. So when you're, when to fight it on an institutional level, one, you have to create the dialogue there. There has to be acknowledged that there is a disconnect and that there is a problem, right? As of, I believe, either 2019 or the 2020 census, I believe Black people make up 30.4% of the United States. We do not make up 30.4% of government. 
Mm-mm. We don't make up 30.4% of the police force. We don't make up 30.4% of really any powerful group of people. We don't make up 30.4% of. You know, obviously in your music industry and, and the athletics industry, we, we're almost overrepresented, overrepresented there, but that doesn't hold true power. That doesn't, mm-hmm. oh, you know, have power to elicit a change in anything. And that's where, you know, that's where a big portion of this battle is going to be fought. Um, and, it, you know, it doesn't just start at government. You know, the, if you go somewhere, if you're in a neighborhood that doesn't necessarily have a great schooling system, and that, that's one of the first things you look for, right? When you have a family, when you're picking a spot to live, what do you think of? School mm-hmm. district. Yeah. Right? Well, if you go to, you know, a predominantly black area, the there's not a, uh, an overwhelming presence of good school districts that are predominantly black. And so that leads to a subpar education. When that when those people don't get a good education, it limits their ability to get into institutes of higher learning. And if you're not at an institute of higher learning, there's also the social aspect there where you're not building those connections. You're not building those bonds that are going to get you into you know, city office or, um, you know, state office, regional office, things like that. So that's furthering that gap. It's furthering that divide. And it all falls under the institution, right? So if you're not getting access to those, that level of education, to those same opportunities, then you're not going to be aware of it. And so that further leads to the lack of representation and the lack of presence of minorities in these positions of power yeah so that, that's the institutional level of it it's it's so it's so sad to see the lack of funding in certain neighborhoods for our education system and you know you mentioned in your story that you know you were lucky enough to go the route of getting a great education getting on to uh, the next level but a lot of people from where you come from, it's impossible. Like that cycle is hard to break. And this is one of the big things like, yes, police brutality. We need to end that. We need to, we need to fix that system because, again, the cycle starts in many places. I know it doesn't make sense, but the cycle starts in so many places where you enter that circle and now you're a part of it, you know. Um, but the education one the lack of funding, the, you know, the way that districts are drawn up, the the way the funding is provided, and it's based on a system where you have to take this this quiz every 10 years where it's like, dude, we're really going to base that much of our budget because of this census? We can't do this every five years. We can't reevaluate things. We can't look at it, you know, on a year-to-year basis. Um it's sad, man. It sucks, you know, and it's it's something that I, you know, I was lucky enough to come up through a great education system in Fort Bend ISD and all that. And I was lucky. But again, this is a big thing where I'm telling everyone else, you know, my friends is like, this is what it's not about us. It's not about us. But we're fighting this because we want to make sure everybody has this opportunity that we had that we were lucky enough to get. And we're focusing on small things. But one of the big things here is, can we give this opportunity to everybody? And that's that's a point that a lot of people miss. And uh, I love that you pointed it out in your letter. Yeah, 
And uh, so, and then that's a that's a very tough topic to address because a lot of people don't want to admit the advantages that they've had. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, I was I was, I was extremely lucky because my mom went to great schools and she recognized the value of education from a very young age. So she had my brother and I tested. We got into a magnet program at Roberts Elementary. That program that doesn't exist anymore, but for us it did, and we capitalized on it. We then went to uh, T.H. Rogers, which is another public school, but you have to apply to get into it, and it's all vanguard and gifted and talented students at that school. And from there, you know, if I hadn't gone to Roberts, I would have never known about T.H. Rogers. If I hadn't mm-hmm. gone to T.H. Rogers, I would have never known about Straight Jesuit. And, you know, Luckily, I, I've always tested well. I tested really well on the entrance exam for private high schools. So I got a very big scholarship to go to to go to straight. And then my last two years there, a, a black alumni wanted to, you know, help another black student at the school and, and provide tuition for that person. So I was extremely lucky in that sense. And then I got a scholarship in college. So um but like I said, those that's a very, very small sample size, and it's a yeah. very, you know, it's very exceptional and uh, almost miraculous that I was I was afforded those opportunities. It's like that opportunity that you had should be open to every kid, you know. Right. It should be open to every kid that you grew up with. Um, they should get that opportunity, and it shouldn't be like, oh, you got to test in here. You, you, it's not like, hey, we got to filter these kids out. It's how can we. How can we make it? Yeah. How can we include them and make it so that they're part of all of this? It's not just about filtering out the good ones. Let's open it up where it's for everybody. Let's see if that can help change things. Yeah. On a societal. It's so frustrating to see uh, people not recognize that. Yeah. And, you know, that's one of those things that you can't come right out the bat. And that's why delivery and, and, mode of communication is so important now and that's why i worded things mm-hmm. the way that i did and as carefully as i did because i i had to rewrite rewrite that thing so many times because i didn't want to come off as overly militant in 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 what i was saying and or or too dramatic in what i was saying but uh you know the sentiment was there and it needed to be communicated let's talk about the social and cultural part now Right. So the social and cultural part, um, you know, that this is probably the more delicate one to address because there's just so many different aspects of a society and culture. And, you know, one of the things that I've, I've, I've heard a lot that's been trending is like, you know, people love black culture, but don't like black people. Right. Uh, you know, the the music, they love watching, you know, the athletes doing doing these amazing things. And they love, you know, just just the whole. Yeah, I mean, everyone knows knows that like, there's a certain type of, you know, mystique and, and fascination around black culture and, and really black excellence that, that's out there. But it it should be more so like wow, these these people are awesome not oh these black people are awesome you know yeah. so it it's got to be as a culture and as a society we need to be more inclusive in everything and we need to be more open to dialogue and and able to have 
tough conversations about hard issues without taking them harshly, you know, and, and that's very hard to do, you know, that, that, that requires a lot of reflection and it requires a lot of acknowledgement that a lot of people don't want to, to give. Yeah. I, I talked to Eric Layden, who's an actor uh, from Houston. He's in LA now. And we were talking about the Drew Brees story and he, you know, he made a really good point to me because I'm still upset, right? Like, because what Drew said to me, it was like, dude, you're dismissing everything that, what you know, that's happening with the protests and what happened with Colin Kaepernick. And then he issues an apology because he just gets destroyed on Twitter and his teammates and all that. And I'm going, dude, just double down, just double down. If that's what you feel, go for it. But Eric brought up a really good point that you also brought up, like, you know, if we have these tough conversations, if we are listening, if we're going out of our way to listen, which is a big part of this, and then we reevaluate everything, we can't then come back and destroy the person for apologizing or for saying that, look, I was wrong. Like, you want people to change a little bit, right? And and that 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 was like, okay, dude, I was so wrong on my opinion about Drew Brees that, okay, yeah, that is the whole point is let's listen. Let's let's try to change people's opinions let's try to change people's perspective of things that's what we want to do on a certain level on the social and cultural level exactly and um you know it it and it's very hard to acknowledge when one is wrong um luckily for me i've been wrong in many points in my life to where it's kind of just like yeah whatever i was wrong let's change it i'm sorry that i hurt you in that way and i don't want it to happen again so that's, but you know, not everybody's wired like that. Not everybody wants what's best for everyone. You know, there's all, you know, people are selfish for good or bad reasons. You know, that it's, it's just the way the world is at times. But if we can, you know, just start talking and start talking to understand as opposed to talking to win, I feel that that's really where real progress is made and real growth is because growth isn't comfortable. You know, and a lot you're asking right now a lot of people to come from places of comfort to a place that's not very comfortable and could, you know, negatively impact their quality of life, whether it's minuscule or not. You know, a lot of people don't like change. A lot of people are okay with the status quo. The vast majority of people, it seems, would be okay with the status quo. But for the marginalized groups, we're not okay with it. And you know, the silent protest didn't work. You know, going at it the way that the oppressors or the people in power wanted us to go about it didn't work. But, you know, people started destroying property and it instantly, it instantly opened up the dialogue. Yeah. So while I don't, I, I don't, I'm not out here breaking stuff. I'm not doing any of that. I, you know, I've done a couple of marches with, with some people. I go to just kind of see where everyone's at. And the vast majority of people don't want to destroy things. But if they feel that's the only way that their voice is going to be heard, then that that's what they're going to do. And then, you know, uh, and of course, everyone has pointed this out so much. You know, it, it turned into something that, you're like, okay, what is happening? The looting, the destroying of the businesses. And then you find out like, okay, there's a lot of outside forces at work here as well. You know, it's not just, uh, hey, a bunch of people were upset and now they come in and, and they're destroying property. Was there some of that? Yes, there was. Absolutely. Was there some of, you know, outside involvement with other groups? 
Yes, there was. Like, I mean, there, the the record shows it now, you know, and, and it's so funny for a majority of the people, you know, we get lost in this whole thing about social media. Everyone's on it. Not everyone's on social media. Not everyone's getting the information like we do on Twitter. You know, on Twitter, immediately you see something, you go, oh my gosh, I hope, I hope this is wrong or I hope that something else is happening here. And you find out, yeah, there was other groups. Antifa's over here, you know, coming in and, and ma making their message heard now and trying to destroy the system or whatever. And you find out on Twitter, but for somebody that's in that majority that is okay with the system, they're like, oh, look, it's all the black people. They're doing it. And it's like, no, 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 dude, there's other things happening here, but it's too late because they just got their news from somewhere and they're not going to follow up on this. And right. you're fighting that battle as well. And I have to remind myself because, look, my dad, he's not on social media other than Facebook. And when he's on Facebook, he's not he's not getting involved in political conversations. He's getting his news from that quick you know, news bite that he sees on CNN or whatever channel he's watching. And then that's it. And that, that's the news to him. There's no follow up anymore. And right. you're, it's like. There, there's a there's a fight on that front as well. Yeah, and that and that ties into you know your duty as, as as a person. You know, we live in an era where information is so readily available. There really is no excuse to be uninformed on anything that you want to have an opinion on. Period. Yeah. But you know, people don't want to be wrong. People don't want to admit that there's things that they don't know. So you you create that snap reaction. And then sometimes it's just like, well, this is what I said and I'm going to stick to it. That's, I mean, that's an extremely unhealthy way to go about life. And it's necrotic to progress. Uh, when, when you look at something, you know, I've, I've had to do this myself is, is kind of quell that snap reaction that snap, you know, F this, F that, that's stupid, uh, whatever. And I have to go and, you know, do my own research and actually look into things, you know, check the sources, do things like that. And a lot of people don't even know how to do these things. Mm -hmm. They don't know how to read a scientific article. Same thing with statistics. Uh, I mean, I've seen so many statistics being brought up on, you know, black on black crime or, you know, the per percentage of black people committing violent crimes. And one guy was using, um, you know, current numbers of, of crimes but basing it off of the black population from 2014, you know, it, and that doesn't, that of course you're going to get inflated numbers when it comes to that. And Man. people don't know how to look at a set of data one and recognize like who's conducting the study, you know, the selection criteria for the, the data involved. And they don't know how to really infer their own information from the data. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot, even in the educated community, a lot of people just read the abstracts. I've done that. You know, if I'm if I got a research paper due in, in two weeks, I'm not going to read 15 different studies. I'm going to read the abstracts of, you know, most of them might pick four or five to actually look into and, and discern what I want to say. And then I'm going to pick things and manipulate the information and manipulate the way that I present the uh, the information to fit my narrative. And that's called confirmation bias. You know, people do that a lot. And it's being done a lot, especially with the numbers being thrown out there right now. And when you want to bring things up like a, uh, a black on black crime or things like that, what people fail to realize is crimes are committed by those that are in your vicinity, you know? 
if I need something and I think stealing is the only way to get it, I'm not going two, three hours or I'm not even going, you know, 20, 30 minutes out of my way to steal something. I'm going to find the, the closest available thing. So that's that's where that I mean, there's just a uh, there's a lot more to delve into on that. But mm-hmm. that's where a lot of people I feel aren't really looking at the information rationally and they don't know how to. And that's not on them. That's on how they were educated. For you as a black man, the last 10 days or so, what has it meant, man? You know, the one of the things that really stood out to me was that all 50 states have had some form of protest over this. And that's the first time in history. And it's a shift towards an awakening you know it's, it's a shift towards real progress for the first time ever really i feel hopeful that you know some progress might come out of this you know it wasn't one of those things where it was just swept under the rug every time it was tried to be forgotten people said no 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 this is what happened this was wrong there needs to be a correction and a lot of people are doing it. You know, I have friends from, I have friends and followers from all over the world, and they're sending me their stories. They're sending me clips of the protests that aren't just going on in America. They're going on everywhere, and people are finally bringing this to light and finally acknowledging that hey, there's a problem here. And for once, it's not just the minorities. And I think that that's extremely powerful. Uh, that's the same thing. I was talking to Michael Pearson. He's a friend of mine out in L.A. He uh, he works in radio out there, and uh, he's older than both of us. And you know, he was there for the Rodney King riots in L.A. He was 16 years old when they were happening, and he he said when those riots were happening, it was it was black people and it was minorities. That was it. There was no white people. It was if there was, it was somebody. You know, it was really rare. And he said the difference between the protests that are going on right now and what happened in 92 was look at the difference of people that are here that are done with this. It's everybody. It's like, you know, and and the other thing that is shocking about what's happening now is you look at the corporate dollars. You look at the messages from the corporations. It's like, okay, you know what? We in 2016, it felt like, hey. We can't go. We can't go all in on this anti-anthem thing, you know. Even though that's not what the message was, it was about. Can we talk about police brutality? Can we talk about what's happening in the black community? It was. It was hijacked by the whole. Oh well, look, they're anti. Uh, they're anti-anthem. They just don't like the country. They're anti-military, and it felt like the. You know, at this at the time, 2016, the sentiment was, yeah, you know what? I feel like most of the public feels that way. So corporations didn't release statements. You didn't get these big statements uh, from anybody, you know. And now you look at it and you go, freaking Legos and Paw Patrol and Nick are like putting out statements. And you're going, what the hell is happening? How did this shift in four years where now corporations see that, hey, a lot of people don't agree with the way the system was set up. And they're now going, okay, that's what the public sentiment is. That's another major shift is that you've got corporate dollars pouring in now and uh, corporations aligning with the the freaking message of the system is not it's not fair to everybody and there is injustice there. Guys, th- this is what everyone was saying 4 years ago. 
welcome to the party. That's been fascinating to watch is all these corporations and money that's coming in and the messages being sent out by them. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's actually, it, you know, that's, it makes things even more hopeful because mm-hmm. when, this, when this first started, um, I remember I was, I was working in a bank. Uh, I was a loan coordinator at a bank and I was a general manager of a nightclub as well. And, you know, there was a much bigger contrast at that time. The naysayers were a lot more vocal and there was a lot more of them at that time than there are now. Now I'm seeing, you know, from my own personal friend group, when people are, are coming with the, Oh, you know, just, you know, it's just more whiny prima donna celebrities saying, well, they're saying, no, dude, it's, it's wrong. And more and more people are standing up. And that's part of that societal and cultural shift that I, I outlined in the letter is you, you can see it now. More and more people are shifting towards wanting to be on the right side of history. Uh, you know, I even, I shared something today because I've got people from my college reaching out to me saying, hey, you have a bigger platform than I do. You know, this is kind of what's going on at the school right now. Can, can you say something? And, you know, it was one of the, the attack officers made some con- inappropriate comments about everything that was going on. And, yeah, my first thought was to post something inflammatory saying this was But now my stance is more so just provide information. So I, I in my post today, I just said, hey, you know, this is a little backstory on the school. This is how the cadets are expected to act. Why is this okay for the faculty to do things like this? Mm. Like I'm open to a conversation about this. I'm not, you know, I didn't say this dude should be fired. I didn't say any of that stuff. I said, I'm open to the conversation about this. I want to hear, you know, what's going through this guy's head. And the guy reached out and messaged me. Uh, he messaged me right before the interview started. So I haven't had mm-hmm. a chance to read it yet, but that's a big step. As opposed to, you know, I feel like four years ago, it's just been like, F you, you're being soft, you're being whiny, you know, you got a discounted education, just be be grateful and move on, as opposed to people willing to actually sit down and have these talks now. Yeah, that, that's a big thing, man. It's, uh, it, it's, look, it's far from being perfect, and I don't think it ever will be. It's just impossible, right? Like, it, it's one of those things where, you can chip away at this and hopefully it will be perfect for everybody. But I look, the way the system is set up, it's going to take a long time. But the fact that we're finally moving in that direction, you know, that's that that's beautiful. But now we got to follow through with it. Like you meant, look, right. we, got, we got to start start voting. Right. Everybody. Not it, This isn't just for minorities and uh, African-Americans. This is for everybody. Go vote. Go yeah. go express Go express what you feel and see if there if you can make a change on the local level. Um, where you spend your money, that's huge as well, man. Uh, that, that's a big part of this. Uh, there's so many little things that can that can happen. Go volunteer your time. Go have a conversation. You know, it's not going to just be one thing that solves all this, but you're going to have to take different steps and and be comfortable taking those steps. That, that's another thing that everyone has to realize is we're going to have to do more. It's not just going to be one thing that changes all of this. Right. And it's not easy either. You know, it's not like I can, uh, John Jones is doing like kind of a community cleanup thing out here now. And I've, I'm volunteering like my time towards that. I'm actually going to, uh, one of the little rallies today just to clean up afterwards and everything. But it's important to, 
you know, you, you can talk it all you want to, but you got to walk the walk as well. You have to live it. And a lot of people don't do that. You know, I could very easily just have written that letter and left it at that saying, all right, that's my, I did my part. I'm not doing anything else, but no, I, you know, I have a responsibility to these marginalized people. And if I, I belong to that group and if I can express it to where, up to a point or to a crowd that they couldn't otherwise get it exposed to, then like that's my duty and that's what it's what I have to do. Like I personally am an anarchist. I don't I don't believe I don't like government. I don't like being told what to do. I don't feel like any grown individual know can tell me better how to live my life than I can. Mm-hmm. But I still recognize the importance of letting that voice be heard, voting, doing this and and moving to progress because if i do nothing if i'm neutral on that because i don't agree with it if i just sit back and don't participate that only benefits the people that are already in power Mm -hmm. we need to change that so yeah i i have to do my part even though i don't necessarily want to and a a lot of people have to do that you have to suffer some inconvenience on this it's not gonna be easy absolutely man absolutely um let's uh, let's shift a little bit, okay? Right. Asaka, I have, a, I have a question for you because I was so fascinated by this. What was harder to accomplish, becoming an Eagle Scout or getting a computer science degree? Ooh. Uh, I will say that getting um, becoming an Eagle Scout was harder to accomplish than getting my computer science degree. Um, that's because, though, with, with the Eagle Scout, there's a lot more to it than just academic work. So on an academic front, yes, getting the degree was harder. But to become an Eagle Scout, you know, I had to have so many hours of community service. I had to devise a community service project to aid in the community. I had to be on track. Or like, there was two merit badges that, well, one rank that required a 30-day fitness thing, one that required a three-month fitness plan and following through with it. And, you know, I had to do so many camping trips, learn how to, learning, you know, getting a wilderness survival, like learning how to do all of that. And uh, then you have to hold leadership positions in order to, to get that. It was rough. That was yeah. that was tough for me. That was tough. But and I took a two-year break uh, once I got to high school. And then my last two years, like I finished everything, I think a month before my 18th birthday. And I did the final evaluation for it like a week before I turned 18. So that, that's a lot to ask someone under the age of 18 to do. So it, that was pretty hard. Yo, you think you could, like, if you went on naked and afraid, you think you'd win it? I don't know if I would win it, but I, I, I could do pretty well. I know I wouldn't die. So. No, you, yeah, I don't think you would die either. I think, I think you could win it, man. I think because your survival rating would be pretty high because of your background. Right, right. <laughs> That's a uh, uh, man. Those shows. I always, when I'm driving from Albuquerque to Santa Fe, I always play that game with whoever I'm in the car with. I said, if I if I go five miles off road and I just drop you, okay, in the middle of nowhere, we're about thirty miles out from. Let's go thirty miles out from Santa Fe. If I just dropped you, do you think you could survive? Yeah, I, I could definitely survive. I yeah, could. I know you could. I don't think many people could. Uh, what's been happening with your career, man? Uh, MMA, what's up next for you? All right. So I, I recently signed with Aries Fighting Championship. Um, 
They are. They've only had one event so far. They are a European and African promotion. So all their stuff is overseas. Um, I was scheduled to fight in August. I had just agreed to opponent. I was going to fight August in South Africa, um, but COVID delayed everything. So now we're looking at uh, late January for uh, for my fight. And um, they're working on legalizing everything, getting all the permits and stuff done for uh, to bring MMA to France. So I should be on one of the first uh, French cards out there Dude. whenever whenever that's made. Um, you know, they sent me over an opponent. We agreed to it. Contracts probably will not be sent out until COVID and everything is, is, is done with. But, yeah, think, things are going good on that front. I'm actually... You know, for a lot of a lot of the online hate has been, you know, back to the regional shows. It's not I'm fighting internationally now and uh, making a little bit more money. I'm getting a, a few more opportunities that I don't think I was going to be able to get uh, for another two or three years with the UFC. So this is uh, it's a really good step for me. It's great for building the brand. I get to exp- uh, expose my brand to a new new audience. So I'm excited about that. And then you're going to be in Albuquerque up until the fight, or are you coming back home? You know, uh, well, you know, I broke up with a girlfriend, so there's really not a reason to go back now. <laughs> uh, I'm pretty much going to just stay out here and grind. Obviously, if a family emergency comes up or something like that, I'll, I'll make time to, to go visit back there. I might visit Houston two more times before the fight just for a couple days. But when I go there now, I don't even announce it. I just kind of show up, you know, go to the old stomping grounds, go to my favorite coffee shops and uh, roll back out. Are you training at uh, Winkle John? Is that where you at? Yeah. yeah I'm at Jackson wink. Uh, oh. It's the one right by downtown. Yep. Dude, what's that like, man? Because that's, uh, and that's where John Jones is training as well. Um, you got a bunch of just trained killers there. The energy must be unreal. Yeah, you know, it's different. And, you know, it's kind of bringing the – it reminds me of being back in a, a college wrestling room. You know, it's just bringing that animal out every day. You know, you take a day off, you know, it's getting taken to you that day. So here um, I don't get to do that. But it, it's fun, man. It's it's the first time in a long time, I'm you know, I look forward to going to class every day and just, you know, you know, pushing it every day, just, you know, wrecking it out you know i'm waking up now like yeah it's sparring day today i get to see yeah. i get to try all this new shit i learned last week I'm, I'm excited about it so you're rolling with i mean you're practicing you're rolling with uh other guys like mma fighters ufc fighters right it's not it, right. you're you're in like the more specialized program obviously where it, it, you got other trained killers with you yeah yeah most of my stuff is uh i go to mostly invite only okay like, you know i have uh Five uh, every day. I have a session with Greg Jackson. Uh, three or four times a week, I hit pads with Coach Wink, and that's just that's a workout from hell. Coach Wink can go like just all day. Dude's in shape. I don't I don't know how he does it. Now, do you uh, like when John rolls through? Do you guys kind of give him the business about what's happening, or do you guys not talk about what's happening on Twitter or what you know the dispute that he has with the UFC? We don't really talk about it at all, uh, all that much. The way we see it is, uh, you know, that that's his personal business. If he wants to talk to us about it, he will. He doesn't. He doesn't. You know, most of my conversation with John are about, you know, food and women. So that's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's there you go, talk. man. Dude, that's awesome. Juan, thank you so much for taking some time out, man. I really wanted to chat with you and learn a little bit more about the letter and learn a little bit more about your journey and, 
Um, again, I encourage everybody to read it. It's in the description of this episode. You can find it and uh, support Juan. He's a great dude uh, on Instagram at chosenjuan285. And again, you are open to the discussion, man. I love that. You, you want to talk to people, which is great. It's not just this is my way or the highway. So keep that up, man. Keep that and keep putting this great energy out there, brother. For sure, man. Thanks for having me on. All right, man. We will talk to you guys next time. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. Thank you so much for listening.